Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. All right, y'all, let's go ahead and get to the Word. Um, We're going to be in the book of Philemon, which, believe it or not, um, is in the New Testament. It kind of sounds Old Old Testament-y, but we are going to be, it is right before Hebrews, it's kind of a bigger one, right after Titus. Um, We're also going to have it on the screen, so if you can't find it, that's totally cool. A few things, though, as we're getting going. Hopefully you saw a Connect card on one of the chairs beside you, we didn't print enough for every chair, but particularly if you hear some of the things Tristan is saying and you're like, I want to connect and know more about what's going on there, um, we really want to get to know you, meet up with you, answer any questions you might have. So grab a pen somewhere around you, fill out one of those cards, and um, just turn those in at the connect table. We would really love to be able to um, connect with you all throughout this semester. Um, so as you're, as you're finding uh, Philemon, I want to tell a quick um, sort of a story that uh, will hopefully introduce and make a point here of, of why the topic of Philemon is so important for us as the people of God. Um, if you've been at my house in the past two and a half weeks um, before yesterday, you would have noticed that something smelled horrible in the house. Now, um, this was something that we have a seven-month-old, so I thought potentially you know, a diaper had made its way in somewhere that we couldn't find, and that was just kind of making the whole house smell horrible. And, um, you know, weirdly enough, it just kind of ignored it, because after a while, I don't know if the smell went away or if our, our noses just got, like, used to it, and um, we just kind of moved on. But yesterday, um, it got to the point where something had to be done, and it was just worse and worse, and every time the, um, the heat would come on, and then it would just, like, blow the smell up throughout the entire house. And so for real though, those of you that have been at my house in the past two weeks, I know you guys are just being nice. Like you just held your breath and acted like everything was fine. So anyways, we noticed that it was kind of coming from the back of the house. So I thought, you know, maybe, um, maybe it's outside. So we got outside. I smelled a little stronger. And then I'm like, maybe it's underneath the house. So I open up uh, the curl space and um, peek inside and I got the whiff of just darkness, like um, it, it was horrible, and for two reasons, one, if you know me at all, I can't fix anything, I don't like working on stuff, um, and <laughs> I mean, some things, but just normally I just call Nate and say, dude, can you help me with this, um, but I felt like I'd overused that privilege and thought, you know, Nate's not going to come over and get rid of this, so I put on a headlamp, and uh, which already, those of you that know me, you're like, Okay, he's a poser. And um, so I, I go into the house, and I'm looking around, or in, underneath the crawl space, and can't see anything, can't see anything. And all of a sudden, I catch a glimpse of, how do I even put this into words? Um, it was the, the worst thing I've ever laid eyes on. Um, it, it was crawling in white maggots. Um, it was something that was larger than a mouse. I thought potentially... Um, this thing was dead, obviously, um, and, and I just didn't know. It was sitting in like this nasty pool of water, and um, immediately knew, though, that was probably what smelled bad, right? 
Um, and so I go back inside. I didn't do anything about it at first. And I come back inside. And if you know my wife, this makes, uh, you'll enjoy this too. I, um, I was looking around, and she could kind of tell that I was looking for someone to delegate this to. Like, uh, you know, like, man, who could I, could I call? Like, this is, you know, I'm thinking, is there any, how do you even Google this? Um, and she looks at me, and she goes, you're not going to delegate this, this to anyone. Your only options are me, my mom, and Duke. And I thought, it is a crawl space. And, um, you know, Duke can't quite crawl yet, but maybe, you know, if he could pull it off. So I, really, it was this sense of dread that I was like, I got to go. I got to deal with this thing. So I got a rake, and I went inside underneath the house, and I raked it all the way over. It just smelled so bad. I have, like, a T-shirt wrapped around me. I'm just, it's, not only am I not handy, gross stuff just, like, affects me so strongly, and I'm like dying. Finally get this um, thing, it's, I I guess a rat, it was huge, a decaying, and I I put on a glove, and I put on like a trash bag so I can like grab it, and as I'm grabbing it, and I I flip it over, just to give you the the size of this thing, it was hanging over my hand on both sides. That's how big this disgusting thing was. Anyways, finally got it wrapped up, put it in the trash can, and the smell went away. That's great. But why do I, why do I even tell this story? One, I needed to verbally process. Secondly, <laughs> there, there's a point. And a lot of times when it comes to the topics that we're going to have to deal with in the book of Philemon, a lot of you have stuff that is stinking up your soul that you're too afraid. Either, either you're ignoring it, you're pushing it away, or you don't feel like putting the work of actually digging down and getting rid of it. And what we're talking about in that is whenever the gospel happens in real life with sinful people, Sometimes disunity and division happens, and it can rot out a ministry. And that is what we're going to have to deal with in the book of Philemon. Because here's the fact. God is working an incredible plan in our world. He is perfect, he is good, but we are not. And yes, he works through our mess, and the early church was no different. God saved sinful people, and he sent them to other sinful people, and then those sinful people made sinful churches, and as they continued to rally around the gospel, they continued to spread and multiply, but one thing stayed the same. These people were saved and redeemed, but they were still sinful. And how this usually plays out, particularly in a bunch of different backgrounds and a bunch of people that are given one mission, what this usually looks like is disunity coming in the form of bitterness or resentment or jealousy, or arguments, or drama, whatever you want to say, this is how it usually plays out. Whenever your heart is not set on Christ and someone else's heart is not set on Christ, what that usually looks like is you both are wanting something that's not actually what's best for you, and it causes you to go at each other. You've probably been there, right? Like some head nods, like you guys have been in a situation where your problem is causing conflict, but it's really easy to kind of blame that person or blame other situations, realizing it's actually your mess. It's way underneath the crawl space of your soul. So our series title is Where the Gospel Meets Division, and Paul is going to be addressing an issue in the church of Colossae that is showing it really a case study of what happens when the gospel impacts real people in real life ways, and there is division. So for your notes, I want to give you a little bit of a background so you can understand the weight of this, um, of this book. Because you probably already noticed, it's not very long, right? We're only going to spend three weeks in this book. Um, but it is an important three weeks for us because if we will take these things seriously, it can make us a powerful force for the kingdom. So here's the setup. You've got one character you need to know. His name is Onesimus, okay? Onesimus, and his name actually means useful, 
So kind of tuck that away. That's going to make more sense later. And Onesimus was a bondservant or a slave to a believer named Philemon. Um, or Philemon, but I'm probably going to stick with Philemon. And the entire book, just because some of you already kind of rubbed a little bit, you're like slave, believer, that kind of thing. Um, the entire book is actually going to show how the gospel undermines slavery, but we can't deal with all of the ethical issues right now of that word and the implications. But if you have questions with me, we're not shying away from that. We just can't spend all the time um, dealing with that. Please find me afterwards. I would love to discuss how in the world like this seems like you know, they're not explicitly condemning slavery, but implicitly condemning it. How do we, how do we wrestle with that? But the other character is named Philemon, and he's a believer, and he is the boss or the master of Onesimus. And if you read between the lines, what it looks like happened is Onesimus stole a bunch of stuff or money and then ran away from Philemon. He stole, ran away, and somehow, in God's providence, he met Paul the Apostle. So you've obviously heard of him. Paul, in in his Paul way, shares the gospel with Onesimus, and Onesimus goes from being a runaway thief to someone who is now a believer in the Lord. And Paul, of course, in getting to know this man, learns the story of what's going on, and he writes this letter to give to Onesimus to show that Philemon needs to reconcile with this person who has stolen from him and ran away. So you can't imagine the drama of this situation, right? Like, Philemon knows, like, this is someone who was stolen from me and ran away, and all of a sudden he's back and he's holding a letter from Paul. Like, this is an extreme case of what can happen when sin of one person and tense relationships need reconciliation, and that is the point of the book. So, Paul is sending him back, as I said, showing us how believers should reconcile when sin has fractured our relationships. Now, throughout all of this, though, we're going to see beautiful angles of the gospel. Because, by the way, it's not just a practical how-to book of unity. The ultimate point is that Jesus died for us and rose again. And because he is reigning, we are free to pursue unity together. And all throughout, as I've mentioned, we're going to see a lot of gospel in real-life moments. And from that, we're going to see so many principles about what it would look like for us to be a unified people, particularly when strained relationships happen. Because unity is not just the absence of strained relationships. Unity gets its force from when you love each other enough to deal with the strained relationships because they're going to happen. So let me give you four reasons why we need this as a ministry. The first one is this. We are sinful people who will attack each other if we do not actively seek unity, peace, and reconciliation. You need to know that. Like, if you don't think you're capable, you might be the problem. And I love you enough to say that. Unity is something we seek after. It's not something that we just assume, ever. You're sinful. You are going to be bent on yourself. Uh, Number two, the devil will work through our disunity. Um, And we get this from Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Went through Ephesians last year, if you remember this. Disunity in our lives gives, literally says, gives the devil a foothold in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I am planning on going all out for the kingdom this semester. Like, I want to see people saved. I want to see more baptisms. I want to see us reaching um, new people, reaching the lost. And you better know that as we continue to advance the kingdom, disunity will come. And if we give the devil a foothold in our ministry, bad things can happen. Not like in a spooky, scary way. I'm saying our souls can be rotted out. Our joy can be drained. Disunity can reign and rule in your life. And we will not have 
peace. Number three, Jesus desires his people to have peace and unity. And really, point number three, should be enough, right? But this is what he wants. Look at Psalm 133, verse 1. Um, it says this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. God loves when we dwell in unity. Number four, and I love this. I hope you've seen this before in your reading of the Gospel of John, but um, John 17, uh, 20 through 21 says this. Um, This is Jesus praying, and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. By the way, that's us. He's praying for his disciples, and he says, I'm also praying for the ones who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And look at this. So, so why? Why does Jesus want unity? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we can spend a lot of time thinking of incredible outreach strategies and ministry ideas. But Jesus seems to put a precedent knowing that people are going to know who he is and what he has come to do by looking at the people who claim him and seeing their unity. The way that you interact with each other is preaching a gospel to the world. You need to know that. And he's saying, you, wanna, you want people to know why I was sent? you got to be one. Our unity can literally be like the unity that Jesus has with his Father. You imagine the type of grace that we have available. And the real call here is ultimately to get really close to God because unity is inevitable when we're all pursuing Jesus. So there's a lot at stake here with unity. Our world is not unified on hardly anything. It doesn't take long through a social media account to know that. But the gospel that we know and cherish meets every need and every longing of the human heart. And it's so attractive to the ones who know that they need it. So through this, we get to show off the beauty of our God in the way that we love each other. So one last caveat. Listen, it's been a whole Christmas break. I get to have four introductions, okay? Here's, here are five things that you need to potentially do after this series, and maybe even tonight. Some of you need to hear this call and go make a relationship right. Tonight. Number two, some of you may just need to forgive someone. You're holding it in. You're bitter. You're resentful. You hope that good does not come their way. You need to forgive. That kills unity. Number three, some of you need to go repent to someone. Some of you have been the one that did something wrong and you know it. And somehow maybe you self-justified. You're thinking, man, don't come to me if I really hurt them. But no, you know. You need to go make it right. Number four, some of you need to go mediate reconciliation between two people. Some of you have kind of been the sounding board maybe for two parties, and it's your job tonight to go in and say, look, you all need to go talk, and I'm willing to go with you in love if you need me. Number five, all of us need to be the one who includes every brother and sister in the Lord in this family. You see, we can fight disunity on the front end whenever the gospel bears its weight in our lives, and it creates a culture of hospitality and welcome for all people. Um, I want to say this too. Um, in week four of the semester, we're going to do a unity or a, um, a panel on unity, and so we're going to be discussing a lot of the things that are going to come up um, throughout this series. So, particularly if you have questions or issues that you think 
I don't really know how to handle this. Um, we're going to try to handle them all after this series is over. So I would encourage you to either um, send a message like the Instagram account, or if you want to keep it anonymous or something, you can fill out a Connect card or whatever um, and let someone know, and we'll hopefully be able to address issues you might have. So let's go to Philemon. Um, verse 1 through 3. I love this. So remember the context, all the things that bearing its weight on this, and let's read. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and our, the Lord Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, I love how Paul is just name-dropping so many people in this letter, right? It's, it's always good. I think as he's getting ready to confront Philemon with this unity issue, I think he's just showing there's so many of us. We are all a family. We all matter. And I love that, and you'll miss this if you're not a careful reader here. Already in the beginning, the two people who are kind of pinning this letter and sending it show us an incredible truth about the kingdom of God. And if we'll let this truth settle deep in us, it's going to set us on a great path to pursuing unity together. And here's the truth. Paul and Timothy had really different backgrounds. Paul and Timothy had really different backgrounds. Let me, um, let me give you Paul's background. We, you've probably heard this before, so I want to make sure we'll go through this rather quickly. But Paul was a murderer of Christians, a literal agent of Satan, hell-bent on stopping the spread of the church. He approved of the killing of Christians. He would be excited when people got killed or discredited for their faith in Jesus. He would shame people for believing in him. And then literally while he was breathing threats against the church, Jesus saves him. So he has all this baggage, all of this stuff, and then Jesus saves him, changes him, and sends him to spread the message that he once hated. He's transformed, sent to spread the gospel. And then we have Timothy. And by context, it seems like Timothy grew up in a godly home that prioritized the things of God. Look at 2 Timothy 1.5. It says, this is Paul writing to Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Seems like at the very least there was a passing down of faith in Timothy's background. And here's why this matters. And I hope this encourages some of you who maybe fall into this insecurity. Notice who's discipling who. The the one with all the baggage and the one with all of the legit, like, incredible, traumatic memories of how bad and evil and wretched he was in the kingdom of God because he belonged to Jesus and was more mature in the faith. He's discipling the one who grew up knowing the things of God. This should comfort you because what matters is Jesus. This is how the kingdom of God works. Since we're one in Him, we don't have to be intimidated by the maturity of others. There's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. What matters is being close to Jesus. So all of you, you have a place here. You have value. And your unity matters too. I don't want you to hear this and think, I've got nothing to bring to the table. I hope the spiritual all-stars go figure out this unity thing and then I'll cheer them on. No. If you belong to Jesus, you are in the kingdom. And what you bring to the table matters in unity. And then he keeps going. He says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house. I love this. He reminds us that we're all siblings and soldiers together. We're a family with a mission. And notice the affection here. Beloved, fellow brother, 
fellow soldier. The brothers matter. The sisters matter. Even the entire church matters. And this is beautiful because you should not be hiding in community. Your work matters here too. But it also should be a little bit terrifying, right? Because that means that even if you think you're insignificant or you're not popular or you're not up front, even your sin that you bring into this matters. Fighting for unity is a community project for all of us. No matter where you place yourself, on whatever scale you've made up, we all matter. Then, of course, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's not by our efforts. It's only by grace that this will happen. So let's dig in. This grace and peace overflows into verse 4 through 7. It's beautiful. And I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So the love that they share with each other actually manifests itself in a few ways that's really important for us to see if we're going to fight for unity. Here's the first one for your notes. Paul actually thanks God for Philemon. So I want to challenge you here. This might hurt. But for those of you that might feel disconnected or not in with community, I want to challenge you. Have you ever expressed deep gratitude to God for the people around you? Has that been a thing that you've done? It seems normal for the New Testament writers. Have you thanked God for people around you by name? It's not something special and magical about just naming people and all of a sudden you're unified. But it's a lot harder to lean away from people and a lot easier to lean toward people if you are praying for them by name. And if you are more annoyed with people than you are thankful, you're the problem, not them. I heard it, I don't know if C.S. Lewis actually said it, but we'll give him credit. He said, the more pride that you have, the more other people's pride will bother you. That stinks. As we consider fighting for unity together, ask yourself, are you leaning away from community because they just don't get you or they're just annoying or they don't quite see where you're at? If that's where you're always going is them, 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 you might be the problem. In fact, you might be prideful. Paul thanks God for them specifically. This means he knows them well enough to know these things about them. This means he actually put thought into why he loves them. Like, do you realize this type of deep friendship is really countercultural? But can you imagine how God-glorifying this was? We talked about this some at Big Moose, that, you know, we say we have friends, but then I asked, like, could you name the top three uh, prayer requests that they would have? And a lot of us were like, I don't know. So I want to challenge you. Are you really digging in in friendships that would actually produce godly unity? You've got to ask these things. So many people who feel disconnected or that place is not unified, it's because you are not leaning in. I'm so thankful that I have friends that know everything about me. Um, this was made most clear the other day. Um, my wife and a few of her friends went out to see um, the movie Little Women. Anybody seen it? A few, right? Uh, heard it was great. Um, but apparently, Nate's wife, Liza, um, as they were all leaving, someone mentioned, um, <laughs> uh, someone mentioned, you know, it's just like, guys just can't understand the type of sisterly bond that girls have. 
Any ladies say, that makes sense, girl? Okay. And um, Liza said, that may be true, but if anyone's close, it's probably Nate and Dustin. <laughs> Which um, I really didn't know. Insult or compliment, but I took it as a beautiful thing, so I love you, man. Um, but, but, but what I'm saying is, is I am so thankful. Like, those types of friendships are worth the work. It really is, and that's where the unity will actually come. It's going to take work. So, then we get to see what, what Paul actually prays for his church family. So, you should lean into this, because this might change the way that you pray for people. This should reorient the way that you come to God on behalf of your brothers and sisters. He says this, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. He's praying that their faith would become effective. How does faith become effective? By gaining knowledge of every good thing, every good thing that is in us. Why? Because of Christ. So what does growing faith look like? It's You want to grow in your faith? It looks like sharing your faith. It looks like going deep with the knowledge of God. It is claiming and cherishing the good things that are the promises of God, and it is not keeping it to yourself. There is no Lone Ranger Christian. Getting close to Jesus is leaning toward other people. If the impulse in your spirituality isolates you, you don't get it. I promise you, you're missing out on so much joy. I'm not trying to force introverts into uncomfortable conversations, okay? I'm begging you to fight for joy. It is a good and pleasant thing when brothers dwell in unity. I love this too. It keeps going. He says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon's life has given Paul joy and comfort, but even this isn't about Paul. Notice, the reason, as demonstrated by the because, that he has joy and comfort is because the hearts of other brothers and sisters have been refreshed. Like, you know true biblical love and unity is happening when you get joyful because other people are getting comforted. Like, do you see that? Philemon, you're bringing me so much joy because you refresh those people over there. I'm in jail, but I have joy because I know you are comforting them. This is an incredible love. There's no room for resentment or jealousy in that love. Paul was in prison, and it made him happy that other people were comfortable. That's the type of unity he shared with people who knew Jesus. But this is a risk. You need to know this going in. This type of vulnerability is risky because you may not get this kind of love back. But when every brother and every sister is obeying Christ in this way, there is a love and a security that is otherworldly. And that's the love that screams that Jesus is alive. You imagine for a moment this many people all deciding my needs don't matter. What matters is loving Jesus and loving my brother and sister. You imagine like how fun it would be to be there. That is what we're after. That is what glorifies God. So I would just challenge you before we get to the hard part of this text, like make that commitment this year. And for some of you, that step if you've been coming to this church or this ministry for a while, that step is joining this church. That step is saying, you know what? I'm in. These people, they're a mess. <laughs> but I'm all in. We're going to love each other. We're going to lock arms. We'll keep going forward. 
in all the mess with all the grace to glorify God. So, in this though, hopefully you all just said yes in your heart to committing to that. I pray that's the case. But you need to know, as we pursue this, sin is still going to come from you and me. And part of this type of love and unity that we're supposed to have is going to look like having hard conversations because love means we care enough about each other to address sin. And that's where Paul turns next in verse 8. Accordingly, I love Paul, (laughs) though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, just so you know, Philemon, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. This is beautiful. The appeal is clear. And then there's a few qualifiers through there that kind of give the appeal its force. Because of all the truths that Paul had just um, praised God for in Philemon's life, accordingly, because these things are true, here is what we want. We want you to accept Onesimus, Philemon. Yes, he stole from you. Yes, he exploited from you. Yes, he humiliated you. Yes, he ran away from you. But I'm telling you, because of the love of Jesus, I'm saying, bring him back. Take him appealing for him as he would his own child. So I love this qualifier, though, because why would Paul just say, by the way, I can tell you what to do. Why? I'm Paul. Seems confident to me. But why would he say, I can do this, but instead I would rather appeal for love's sake? There's a crucial point here in our fight for unity and also for our ministry and impacting people. Please know that as you impact people in discipleship or evangelism or friendship, encouragement, whatever, you should address the heart rather than make them do what you think you know is best. Showing them the way of love is always more effective than using your influence to make people do the right spiritual thing. You can see how that would work, right? If Paul just said, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, And a matter of fact, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Uh, Philemon, let him back. Paul. Could have, apparently. I mean, I guess it doesn't say he could have. It just says he's bold enough to do it. So, I mean, you know, let the reader understand. But the, the point is that it's always better to appeal for the heart. For love's sake. So in our fight for unity, know this. You are commanded to pursue unity and peace, but God wants wants you to fight for unity from the heart, not just in superficial actions. Actually love them. Here's a quote from some wrong person that said this. God commands us to love people, but you don't have to like them. This is horrible. And some of you have bought this and love this. It's, yeah, I can love them because, you know, I love them in Christ, but do we have to invite them over? We're laughing, but it's terrifying to think that this impulse is in our heart. Never adopt this. If this is your goal for love, you will never be effective in building unity. We are, like, think about this. We're commanded to love people like Jesus loves people, and I don't know that Jesus ever, up in heaven on the throne was like, you know, because of my 
plan of redemption that I've accomplished and perfected on the cross. I love all these people, but I don't know if I'm going to let this one close to me. No way. That's not our God. Love should be a choice from the heart and always in pursuit of unity. You are literally commanded to love your enemies. Jesus died for you, and it was your sin that made God angry. That's the love standard that if we are going to go after for biblical unity that glorifies the Lord, that's the standard. And listen, if that seems impossible, good. Because you should rely on God to obey him. It's not going to help us to lower the standard so that by your flesh you can make it look like we love each other. That does no one any good. Just don't miss this, though. I love this. Uh, quick, convicting observation. Paul shared the gospel in prison. <laughs> like, Paul could have pouted, but instead he shared the gospel. He gained a son in the Lord, and even then he didn't keep him for himself. He knew it would be best for them to be reconciled. Paul was comforted by his new son in the faith, Onesimus, but he said, it's going to be, Onesimus, it's, it's going to be beautiful. You've got to go reconcile. And he says this, Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to, to you and to me. Remember what Onesimus' name meant, right? It meant useful. And before, in his sin and his flesh, before he came to Christ, he was useless for the kingdom. But by grace, he's now useful. Paul is telling Philemon that his once useless servant that stole from him is now useful. He's useful for the kingdom. And this is beautiful if you'll dig in and see this. Because it's actually going to point us to the gospel. You're going to see that this story is actually all of our stories. And it's from that story that we get the power to pursue this kind of love and this kind of unity. But before we do that, and I can't wait for that, but we've got to examine this text again and look at a few reconciliation principles for your notes that I hope will be biblical and helpful in our quest for unity. So we're going to get really, really, really practical here. Um, we see... Six actions in the section of Philemon. And then over the next two weeks, we'll actually get five more as we finish out the book. But I want to make one quick caveat just to make sure that we're being uh, pastoral and helpful for you. Um, we're not talking about someone whose sinful patterns of behavior has made them dangerous to you. Um, whenever you hear, I've got to forgive and be unified, that doesn't mean running back necessarily to someone who is hurting you or puts you in danger. What we're talking about here is sin in both of our lives that causes fractures and disunity that most of us have the grace and the power to do something about, but we don't. So number one, if you're taking notes, this will be the time to do it. Number one, gospel-centered application of fighting for unity. Recognize this. Recognize the reality of unity by knowing that you are family in Christ. Your family. Paul, I love this, he unloads his love for his people and mentions them by name and keeps calling them brother and sister. Like, we need to do this too. In a culture of unity in a ministry, we need to actually be able to look at each other and say, brother and sister. And you need to know that Jesus' blood is thicker than blood. This has always been really precious for me as an only child, that I can have a bunch of brothers and sisters. It's incredible, and it's true. Like, you can call me only child if you want. I've got a bunch of siblings. That is more true. Some of you need to hear this. 
You are more family with a believer in China than some of you are with your biological family if they don't trust Christ. It's the family of God that we're a part of. With our Father in heaven and our big brother Jesus. It's family. You can see worship services as family reunions. We're back again together. Yeah, I don't feel like going this week. Yeah, but your family needs you. Your brothers, your sisters. It's even a core value of this church. We say this. Church family is not like family. It is family. This is family. Number two, recognize the already present reality of your mutual calling and mission. So in the process of, claiming, of calling these people brother and sister, Paul also calls a few of them worker and soldier. And this is a good reminder for all of us. That brother or that sister in Christ that you are at odds with is a fellow soldier and worker on the same mission that you are. Why would we want our petty disunity to let the mission be halted? Can I make any relationship right? This is one of the most important aspects of ministry. Like, look around. Do you realize what could happen if all of us just said yes to Jesus? We're all in this year. And then every time we got together, it was nothing but love and unity to spur us on to take that next step of faith. So often, I bet we go one by one in all of your all stories. The reason why you are where you are with Jesus right now, if you're walking in joy, is because someone brought you in. Someone considered you family. You probably ate around their table, or you got that late night phone call, whatever. But you felt like family. Number three. Anchor every interaction and thought with each other in the grace and peace of God in Christ. And Jake, I just remembered a critique you had of me last semester is that every time I give us a list of things, I fly through it and don't give time, people time to do it. So sorry about that. We're going to go one, two, and three again just for your notes, okay? Um, recognize that you are family in Christ. First one. Number two, recognize your mutual calling and mission. Number three, anchor every interaction and thought in the grace of God. Paul ends his greeting with a reminder of the grace and peace that's in Christ, and then he even ends this letter with grace and peace. Like, this should always be on the forefront of our minds as people of God. Anything that you have that is more or better than hell forever is grace. You are free to keep Showing grace. Keep covering that sin with more grace. Only show grace to each other. Number four, understand the moral authority that you have in Christ to exhort people to love and unity. Understand the moral authority that you have in Christ to exhort people to love and unity. Here's a really important principle for us if we're going to move forward and do this well. You need to hear this. We need to learn to handle strained relationships like sin instead of drama. When you hear of people at odds, that should not excite you. You should not be wanting to get the scoop or pick your side. That is anti-kingdom. That is not glorifying to Jesus. When we have problems in this ministry, we're handling it like sin, not drama. We've been coached and discipled in our culture to handle things like drama. It shouldn't excite you. It should break your heart when brothers and sisters 
have broken relationships. And if you're going to interact with them, you should exhort them to obey the Lord. Refuse to gossip about it. Only focus on what God would want. I'm begging you, please. And if it makes you socially ostracized, blame me. I am begging you all to be that person that when gossip starts, you stop it. They'll hate you at first. Then they'll be thankful if the Spirit is in them. Be that person. Hey, I don't think we should do this. Let's, or, or, you know, hey, let's call them and see what they have to say about this. Begging you, by grace, do it. Do not let these things fracture us. Number five, appeal to each other out of love, aiming at the heart. We want our brothers and sisters to love each other. Remind them that we're made in the image of God. Remind them of Christ's redemption. Like when you slander someone, you are slandering someone that Jesus bought with His blood. We should love each other. And popularity, position, or giftedness should have nothing to do with it. Please know that in this ministry, we are on equal playing fields. That's why we call our student leadership student serve team. We want to remember that we're here to serve. You don't get put on a pedestal. It's not the way of the kingdom. And that means that I am an open book. Because I have a, this microphone on doesn't mean that I'm above this. You love me enough to tell me where I'm wrong. Number six, then we'll get to the gospel, and then we'll sing. Lastly, establish the brotherhood or sisterhood of the accused, of the person in the wrong. The last thing that we see in the verses that we read this evening is that Paul makes it clear that Onesimus is in the family of God now. Did you catch that? It was, whose father I became in my imprisonment, Philemon. So in our fight for unity, always remind each other, especially the person who was wronged, that the one who is sinning is still one of us, and we can chase them in grace. you imagine this conversation? This person wronged me. Man, they're made in the image of God and their sin is fractured, but Jesus died for them. What would God have us do? Instead of, yeah, I can't believe they would do that. What do you mean you can't believe they would do that? You're capable of that. We're all messing this up, but by grace we can take steps of change. We can lean into that. It will change our lives. So as the band uh, comes back up and leads us in singing, I just want to make sure that you see the gospel here. Because the last thing I want you to leave here is with a bunch of steps of, if I go do all these things, then we'll be unified, and then I'll be okay with God. Because the point is, you can't do this on your own. Only by grace can we please God. And the story that started this book is actually the story of all of us in some way. We're all runaways from our Creator, from our Master. We owe Him glory and honor, and in our sin, we stole it and took off. Not that we can actually steal glory from God, I know that, but in a sense, we counted ourselves as more worthy than Him. And instead of letting us take the punishment that we deserve, God made a way for us to be reconciled back into His family. Jesus died in our place. He lived the perfect life for us. He died the death we should have. And He rose again to defeat sin and death. Not just to forgive you from all the ways you messed this thing up, but to empower you to take steps of obedience in pursuing love and unity. And now that you are fully accepted into this family, you're free to pursue each other with reconciliation. To our non-Christian friends, we can show them the way to be reconciled to God. 
And to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we pursue peace and unity so that the whole world will know that our Father sent Jesus. This is worth it. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for my family here. Uh, Thank you for the book of Philemon that is so sharp and so pointed at our souls, Lord, that um, these are parts of us that are so scary for us to face sometimes. It requires strength that is beyond us. It requires humility that we are not capable of on our own. So God, by your spirit, I pray you would unload your grace and power in this room. That as we sing, we would not be able to sing of your holiness without our own personal sin, our own strained relationships, leading us to conviction that ultimately leads to action. And God, I pray you give us grace to confess and forgive, knowing we can have clean consciences before you. And Lord, knowing that you paid the price for our redemption so that we could all be welcomed back into this family. So God, do whatever it takes to make us a ministry that will pursue that kind of love and that kind of unity. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.